Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. The commodities world is inherently risky, and in part, that's why it's been so lucrative for so many organizations. The commodities world faces far more risks than most other industries. Volatile prices that you can't control, liquidity risk, and the complex operational risk of moving commodities around the world or in complex industrial processes transforming them, credit risk working with counterparties around the world, often in less transparent jurisdictions and areas to do business, complex regulatory risk, and finally also geopolitical risk as sanctions and tariffs daily change the landscape and supply chains for commodities businesses. And this has led to the downfall of organizations both big and small, whether it's through outsized trading losses related to a black swan events or investments in big assets that eventually dragged the company down. In fact, of the top 10 trading losses of all time across all asset classes, three have been to do with commodities, despite how small the asset class is compared to the others. And all three have been in the billions. And of course, COVID-19 utterly and dramatically impacted the markets, both reminding and indicating to business leaders where risk lies in their organisations, but also again leading to dramatic losses, this time particularly in Asia. And the markets are only going to get more risky with energy transition. Less investment in infrastructure will make supply chains more fragile and prices more volatile in the hydrocarbon world. But also, which bets to make? When asset investments are in the billions and take years to complete, organizations have to make bets on which products will be part of the energy mix in the future and which products on the sustainability side will be relevant to consumers. All this is going to make for a challenging decade. Today we're going to talk about risk management, both the sources of risk, the philosophies around managing it, and also, and in particular, why outsized losses keep happening and why mistakes are still made. We're also going to talk about the future of risk management and how technology is both enhancing and changing how it's done. Joining us to discuss is David Port. David has been Chief Risk Officer for Utilities as well as Hedge Funds and has had a long career in the sector. David, thanks for joining us again. Uh, My pleasure. Uh, Always always a pleasure to uh, sit and talk with you. So thank you for having me. Excellent. So I guess before we dive into the details, the, the, the fun bits... Is it a fair statement that commodities, the, the sector in general, is more risky than, than most others? And if so, why? That's a very fair statement. I mean, when you look, it depends how you define volatility, but classically, if you were to look at the price behavior um, on the screen for you know our key commodities like crude oil, for example, the price of crude oil has the ability to double. Uh, and the ability to um, cut itself in half. So in terms of volatility over a long period, it's easily uh, one of the higher uh, higher rated asset classes. Uh, you look at the, the price of electricity, which is also a commodity technically, and, the, and, and some of the prices uh, that you can observe in the markets there, they go you know, from $30 uh, a megawatt hour uh, when you have highly constrained uh, extreme days, they can touch $9,000 uh, a megawatt hour in Ercot, for example. So clearly, there's a reason why that volatility exists. And actually, it, it, to my mind, it, it's purely because uh, 
the delivery of that commodity relies on a supply chain and that supply chain often has binding constraints on it. Uh, you can't land the ship. Uh, there are congestion patterns in the power market. Suddenly all storage is full and there's nowhere to put the oil. So it, it, it is more volatile than, you know, a straight equity uh, position, for example. Um, uh, and those are the reasons why, because it has to physically be extracted, transported and delivered somewhere. And often in that process, there are constraints. Mm. And I guess that plays into the the other elements that when, traditionally when we talk about risk and commodities, you know, from a talent perspective, we're also thinking credit. These are you're moving it's a complex supply chain that's also typically and in many cases taking products from uh, the developing world and shipping them to uh, developed nations you know that's a it's it's much easier to assess credit for a triple a rated you know fortune 50 company than it is for a small miner in the west coast of africa for example um and there's also that that's that liquidity piece as well not only the physical commodity but there's also some of these contracts where liquidity dries up very quickly as well, right? Exactly. Uh, And let me just address the uh, credit point to start with and compare it with uh, a garden variety financial transaction in the market where, you know, the markets there are are so so well developed that title to the, the instrument can change instantaneously. And therefore, there's not this, this process of taking delivery, making sure you have delivery, and then paying. Uh, and again, back to the physical process of exchanging and, and moving commodities around, the the actual physical act of delivering something physical in a boat, along a wire, um, on a train, needs to be managed carefully. And there's a huge amount of delivery and therefore credit risk uh, in that process. And then the other thing that compounds the credit risk is the the notional size of the of the commodity value that's being exchanged. So, very often in the financial markets, one can lever a position, and so the cash that has to change hands when an instrument changes hands isn't necessarily the full notional value of the instrument itself. It's often a levered a levered uh, value. But in commodities, it's very often the full notional value. So the quantity that's in the vessel times the the value of that um, commodity in the vessel. And so these can lead to huge notional amounts, which compound the credit risk even further. You add to that the credit rating on the ability to pay and deliver in some countries uh, and locations where you know that becomes difficult for whatever reason, then you're compounding the credit risk yet again. I just want to touch again on, I conflated my question, but <laughs> there's also that liquidity piece as well. Even if you're trying to hedge the physical trade in the markets, a lot of these contracts are pretty thinly traded. And you can quickly find yourself, whilst the the model will come onto models, but you might think you have a hedge, but in reality, the, 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 you have liquidity issues on the financial instruments as well. Exactly. And, you know, in the physical market, these markets tend to be, um, on the one hand, they're very transparent in the fact that most people know what everybody else is doing because it's physically observable. And in that sense, it means that if you happen to find yourself needing to 
buy a vessel on the stock on the on the spot market because you happen to find yourself short everybody knows that you're looking to buy that vessel and the price will adjust accordingly yeah which is why we've often had as a, a head of a trading house in particular who I won't mention but you know just once traders who are also cash managers you know who understand actually yeah it's not just value at risk it's also about the ability to actually uh, execute that trade in the various um, scenarios and protect the, the the cash around the trade. Yes, and you know, and it's the same in most commodity markets. When you when the market is moving fast and you need to cover a position, there's very often less liquidity in the market to to allow you to do that. You can find it, but you'll find it at a different price. What something way different to what your value at risk model may have thought it would be. Mm. And then, so those are the, the the typical ones. But really, and especially heightened by twenty twenty, you've also got to overlay regulatory risk and, in particular, political risk now as well. You know, you're you're typically working on a global scale. You've got multiple different jurisdictions you're involved with. Some are certainly more powerful than others in terms of the ramifications. We're seeing that. All of them face reputational risk. Can we just talk a little bit on regulatory risk and then move on to the geopolitical piece as well? Yeah, well, I would say the the regulatory risk is is uh, is in flux. Uh, it's constantly changing, uh, and it's hard to value. So. I think the way to address that is to understand what the rules are and not try and be cute about what the rules are, uh, but try and conduct your business in a manner that doesn't a- attract the attention of, of regulators. Because once your business comes under the spotlight, um, a regulator will likely keep looking until they find a mistake you've made. And so, and, and that tends to be a deterrent to a lot of a barrier, a deterrent to a lot of market players, and a barrier to entry too. Because the, by definition of the of the supply chain, you know you're moving from one regulatory environment into another if you're shipping commodities globally, and that that sometimes presents an arbitrage, but very often doesn't. It very often introduces a binding constraint on what you're doing. And it's also fair to say this is the one where um, the, the the business meets the personal, right? Um, you know, as an individuals can get tied up in issues here, and we'll, well subsequent discussions in the future on compliance. But um, yeah, if you're named in one of those regulatory uh, issues, whether or not it comes through to any kind of uh, prosecution, that can be career ending. Um, irrespective of the impact on the company. And we should say the impact on the company here, if you look at the fines levied on various banks, um, on other entities, I mean, those can be existential fines um, in, in terms of scale. Yes. And there's, again, and there's, and as, you know, in my career, when we face regulatory risk, there's, but there's no point in trying to create some model that allows you to price it. You cannot price it. You have to assume that, you know, since it's regulatory and therefore, reputational it's going to be existential the other one i want to talk about is is which is particularly relevant now in terms of tariffs and so forth uh, but also sanctions is geopolitical risk when businesses that rely on global um, supply chains can suddenly find themselves hugely disrupted there have even been organizations this year that have ceased to exist as a result of political moves that have meant that their particular business is no longer viable in terms of the regions that they trade yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, and it's it's compelling, um, and it's not to be ignored. A classic 
of of our times is the situation in Venezuela where you know you may think you can make that arbitrage between the the price of uh, Venezuelan crude oil in the market but it is simply too complex firstly uh too costly secondly um, and from a reputational standpoint, there are, there are simply way too many hurdles to actually close that arbitrage. And that's really the reason the arbitrage exists, because nobody really wants to buy Venezuelan crude oil and ship it to China. Mm. Which we should, should say, and I think I mentioned it in the intro, is ultimately all these sources of risk is why the commodities sector is so compelling and can be so lucrative, because you need individuals who are able to make these kind of inverted commas bets, manage all of those risks in what are incredibly complex transformations in space, time, and nature of the commodity world on a global basis. And the, 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 the global economy wouldn't work without them. Right. You're absolutely right. When you look at some of the spreads that are created by the supply chain and all those risk factors that we talk about, they are compelling. But like I said, there's a reason why those spreads look so compelling. And, you you know, as a commodity player, you've got to be very, very um, honest with yourself intellectually about what is determining that price that you see. It's not just free money. There's a reason why it exists. And you're going to have to pay the costs of closing out all those risk factors, which may mean that in the end you look at it and the arbitrage just isn't there. In other words, the geopolitical risk factors, the regulatory risk factors have simply priced away that arbitrage. Yeah. So I think the most interesting way of talking about how risk is typically managed is perhaps to use some examples of when it didn't work <laughs> as, a, as a way of elucidating the various aspects of this. And you and I discussed beforehand that you can probably largely classify issues around not managing risk correctly into two broad categories one of the typically the ones that hit the headlines right the the, the as the jargon is to blow ups um large outsized losses uh, way beyond what was expected from models or from risk managers or from leadership in in commodity trades in one-off trades or a series of trades and then the other ones which are more slow burns but usually more uh, existential by nature in the long term are big bets big on big asset plays or strategies that quickly find themselves redundant uh, because of the changing nature of the commodities markets if we could focus first i guess on the easier bit which is about these sort of trading losses because of uh, either bad actions or poor risk management i guess the the first one which is kind of the just a function of you know what professors will call the agency problem there are some that are just simply down to human malfeasance yeah i mean we still we still read stories despite everything that's written about you know risk management value at risk first line of defense second line of defense third lines of defense all that stuff and yet we still read about the trader who managed to blow up an entire desk by taking a, a gigantic position in some asset class or some instrument and we all sit around and wonder how that can still be happening. And I think my reasoning on that is it happens, it still happens because we haven't really changed the way we operate. We still employ traders and we incentivize them to make money. And so that means that they're actually long 
you know, in real terms, they're long a call because, you know, if they make money, we'll pay them a bonus. If they lose money, the worst that can happen is they'll be fired. And some some people rationalize that and think that's a good risk reward uh, function upon which to be employed. But I also think that, you know, a lot of companies just pay lip service to the uh, to the management of risk and, you know, the extent to which uh, incentives drive behavior. And so it's all very well having a great value at risk model, a great set of processes in the back, you know, to count, to count the widgets, to measure the risk, to run the stress tests. But unless somebody is actually taking that information and challenging uh, the commercial group, about what it means and what to do about it, then we'll continue to see uh, you know, companies get blown up by outsized positions in markets that can't support liquidity, not on entry because the market will always let you enter a big position, but on exit. And it's on exit that people really get caught up. Mm. So we found a really efficient way of incentivizing traders to make money but not an efficient way of preventing them losing lots of money and incentivizing them as well. You know, if you think of, say, prospect theory, which would state that uh, those who are making money become less, more risk averse, but those who are, are losing money become more risk seeking, which itself is a, a human dynamic that can really cause problems in these kinds of scenarios. Plus, is it fair to say that we haven't yet got to a stage where technology or platforms are still able to capture prevent bad actions yeah uh, again i'm going to draw on my experience at citadel and you know we had great technology uh, and we knew everything about our positions and our value and our risk metrics but the 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 art of risk management at citadel is all about measuring and assessing risk upfront before anything's been uh, transacted and understanding the precise purpose of a trade and what in fact it is that we're betting on and removing all the other risks before any positions get taken. And I think that's, that's, a, a, that's an operation that you can't necessarily do with computers. You have to have humans doing that. And so the more successful managers of risk uh, and the more successful traders will have a very rigorous investment process that challenges every commercial um, every commercial thesis that drives a, a trade. And, and many companies just still aren't there. Uh, they have a uh, they have a divide between the commercial decision making and the measurement of risk. And there's 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 no overlap between between those two silos. That is a bit of a luxury of a hedge fund, though, where your entire entity revolves around specifically and choosing to take positions. Whereas one of the nuances in the commodities world, again, why it is so risky, is simply managing a spark spread around a generation asset involves trading. You have to do it on a day-to-day basis, on a month-to-month basis. Trading in the commodities world is an ongoing process just to satisfy producers and consumer your customer demands. And so, you know, you don't necessarily always have that time to put together that deliberate consensus-based detailed planning behind a trade. Uh, I agree. Um, But I would say that even if you're managing a supply chain 
or you're managing a power plant and a spark spread, or you're managing a, you know, a gas contract, physical gas, you still every day have to make decisions about which levers to pull in respect of how to optimize that. And every decision you make is actually a bet on some outcome. And the minute you you view the world or the decision process as that, then ergo, you are effectively trading. Because if I decide to leave my spread unhedged for today, why am I doing that? What outcome am I betting on and why? And what events could make me wrong? And what am I going to do then? And those are those are a fairly rigorous but simple uh, steps to decision-making that every commercial group should be really operating under. And every risk management group that's, that's paid to provide oversight, they should be asking the same questions too. Yeah, and I think that's the second part that you hit on really is how are you empowering and structuring your business to give risk management a voice? And then also who are you hiring into that as well? I mean, I think from our perspective, those organizations that say to us, we want risk, risk management leadership, but who can actually and effectively do their role and have the authority to do it. Exactly. And that uh, still that I think that philosophical step is still a challenge for, for many companies. So, you know, if you're going to ask me to be the chief risk officer at your company, the first question is should be, well, if I don't like this transaction or this trade or this portfolio or this construction, how can I change it? Am I just going to write a report that's going to sit on someone's desk? Or am I actually empowered to do something about it if you won't? And and that really, you know, in institutions that are prepared to capitalize their risk management groups are the ones that in the end will be more successful because they're countering that call option that exists in the incentive structure in the front office. Yeah, which again comes back to that kind of conundrum of how do you incentivize your risk management teams? is that's tied to company performance, again, you can be compounding issues. But I, I mean, I, I think that human malfeasance element, you know, that human element, the human factor is is always going to be there and probably actually is is more about compliance or human risk management than it is about, in some ways, risk management. Where I get, I guess, moving on, the, the another category of calamity <laughs> calamitous <laughs> yeah would, would be where the models were wrong and we see this daily right we have a living in houston we seem to have a, a once in a hundred year storm every couple of every couple of years can you talk a little bit about that can you just how and where are models used in risk management i guess particularly market risk and what are their limitations well i i would start by saying that the models are always wrong and once you accept that then the model becomes part of your toolkit, but not the only thing that that drives decisions. So, you know, the classic um, value at risk assumption about normal distributions, which people have taken that and assumed it's true and built ever complex mathematical algorithms, Monte Carlo simulations, Gartch processes, but at their root, they have to assume something about the price process. And an assumption about the price process is hard, hard to make true every single day, especially in a market that's undergoing stress. And that's really where the risk model needs to be often ignored, not followed, because, you know, a market that's trending fast in one direction 
will will not conform to a a value at risk model that's designed to assume that prices follow a normal or even slightly not normal price distribution. It simply won't be the case. Do those models themselves become less reliable with the introduction of high-frequency algorithmic-based trading, which are perhaps somewhat uncoupled from – they're systematically trading, they're not coupled to supply and demand assumptions? Um, yes, because you know a badly written algorithm will introduce volatility into a price process that isn't actually a function of anything to do with supply and demand, but simply – you know, some arcane function of what the order book happens to look like today versus yesterday. And so you're right, like the, the use of algorithms in commodity trading is going to introduce another uh, differential variable, if you like, to the price process that models then have to take account of. And they can actually, those models can compound stress in in fast moving markets if they're again if they're badly written and don't take account of the fact that a market entering stress probably you know is going to behave differently to the way the algorithm was designed and therefore actually you should switch the algorithm off and so if you don't do that you'll introduce uh, price behaviors that don't make any sense at all because I think from right from the first you know long term capital management up to today, you can see that this is when value at risk has been incorrectly calculated, or these models are pushing trades that just don't don't work. It's, invariably, these things get chalked up to black swans, uh, you know, as opposed to they could happen; they just were unlikely to happen. Right. I mean, but the black swan is the is the catch all, uh, and it gets used liberally, a little bit like you know, point estimations of probability on single outcomes, uh, which don't make any sense either. And so, you know, if you're going to use, if you're going to use black swan as an excuse, then you need to show me your, you know, trade construction where you, where you envisage the things that could blow that thing up that didn't include what you're blaming now. I guess the, the other big category is credit issues. We've seen organizations make substantial, huge losses on collateral that wasn't there in Asia. You know, this is all about tracking and tracing the physical commodity itself. And we've also seen, you know, organizations who get classic credit, you know, who can't pay their debts and that affecting both sides of the, of the particular trade. Is that an outstanding, you know, again, talking about blow ups, is that a, a substantial contributor to that? Yes, it is because it. If you're, if you're financing your your trade, and then you suddenly can't, um, and you suddenly lose your financeability, you can't take delivery or you can't make delivery. That's going to affect the entire market. Uh, there are a lot, a lot of companies that, like any company, actually, not just commodities companies that have, you know, obtained leverage in order to grow and scale positions and got that wrong uh, and found themselves you know, over levered um, in a trading book that simply requires the commercial team to take so much risk to, to cover the financing costs that it just, you know, keeps leading the trading desk into situations where they're essentially out over their skis in a position that they can't get out of. Like I said earlier, the market will always let you enter a position way over the, you know, safe size. 
It's when you come to get out that it becomes difficult. Mm. And there's one subcategory of this, which is, I think is what might look like substantial losses or substantial gains, but they're offset by different instruments. So the other nuance to the commodities markets is you can have these, you know, there's, there's that divide between the physical and the financial, and you can have what looks like substantial financial losses, but you've got physical positions that are hedging that out and, and, and the real source of, of revenue in that particular trade construct. That's right. But and very often the, and this is the classic that caught you know, several energy companies uh, in the early 2000s because you know, they were doing the right thing. They were trying to hedge their physical positions with financial, uh, financial instruments, but those financial instruments were margined on a daily basis based on the mark-to-market. And so on a, on a cash basis, their cash was out of balance because you know, if their hedges were, were losing money but their power plant was making money, that cash from the power plant didn't show up at the same time as the margin call for the hedge. And so a lot of companies got themselves you know, financially hedged but from a liquidity standpoint completely upside down. And again, you know, when you're hedging a large position – that creates a gross position, which is very often you know, too big for the financing capability and the liquidity position. So this might be an unfair question to ask, but looking at kind of these discrete trading loss episodes, on balance, are these mainly down to human error, human malfeasance, I should say, you know, compliance issues, or are they more often down to those you know, issues around credit or or sort of imperfect modeling and, and unforeseen events type issues? Um, I, I wouldn't like to characterize them all in one bucket versus another. I think actually there are, you know, there are a set of factors that contribute to the thing going horribly wrong. And I think very often they include all the things that you mentioned. So for example, they include something wrong with a model uh, that, you know, is a is a lightning rod that people know about but haven't quite figured out how to fix, um, something wrong with a compensation structure, uh, a trader who, you know, has success and realizes an ability to, frankly, impact price in a market, um, a compliance and management structure around that trader that, is is often you know hesitant to ask tough questions because frankly they're looking at the p and l statement and it all looks good and and you know it's human nature um and very often you know nobody in that whole chain willing to say, "Wait a minute, how are we making so much money here like that's not that doesn't make sense. what are we missing and very often it boils down to the fact that we have a position in a market that we can keep adding to that will support our position. But when the minute we stop adding to it, then the price will revert to where it started and we'll have to manifest losses. I think generically, most blow-ups can be characterized that way. So they have all those ingredients that lead to failure. Yeah. And I guess we'll come on to sort of some of the solutions available and, and how technology is unlocking some more solutions but before we want to move up to that i wanted to just the, the second big category of loss 
and this one ultimately typically is much larger than the former, is the commodities world typically involves substantial asset investments, particularly for producers, I would say. And again, coming back to the sort of the same same issues in in hard to uh, manage locations, um, you know, offshore oil, for example, but and in in very unpredictable and changeable markets. I think we alluded to in the intro about energy transition only making that harder. It's hard to make a big multi billion dollar bet on a mining project or an oil project um, if you're not sure how that commodity is going to be consumed in the future. And like all businesses, it's tough to forward prognosticate about these things. But we've seen some substantial enterprise-wide issues over the last decade. I think of there's been investments in sugar mills in Brazil that went wrong. There's been you know multiple examples, I should say. Yeah, it's often down to the fact that you know innately commodities, as I mentioned, like the notional values are substantial the investment horizon to actually create a position in sugar or an electricity spark spread, a physical position. It takes a long time to construct that position uh, if you don't do it financially, but if you do it physically, it takes a long time and a lot of investment to create that position. And so all the while you're creating that position, the market's moving around. So you may find yourself at the end when you've got your sugar mill or your power plant that the spread you thought was going to be there is no longer there. And I think a lot of companies base a business plan around, again, a set of bets on the, you know, the future state of the world. And maybe they don't spend time thinking about, well, how, how, let's keep an eye on the evolution of the world. And the minute some catalyst occurs, that changes the future state that we're betting on, what's our plan? I think a lot of companies forget about that. They just assume that once they've set off down the path, they've got to go to the end of it. And that's the first thing. So, you know, by its very nature, the sums involved are huge. When you start adding the need for a lot of companies that want to do it at scale, so they want 10 sugar mills or all the sugar mills, or they want, you know, five power plants or all the power plants in a particular market, then you get real problems because once you start along the path of constructing that position, you're never going to get out. You have to be right. So it's almost like the investor versus the trader. Mm. And we haven't quite, I guess, pushed this point yet. It's not like if you're going to spend 10 years worth of R&D in a particular product, that if it pays off, you have the ability to command the price over because of patents and the, and the rest of it. Commodity prices are dictated by the market, by the lowest cost producer and shipper. And so when you there's really very little protection over how you're going to monetize those massive plays in the long term. Well, very often the price that you see at the end is determined by the actions you're taking in building your physical position. Because again, there's no, you know, there's plenty of transparency around construction of an LNG terminal or construction of an oil terminal. Everybody can see you doing it. Everybody can go and look at it. They can measure the capacity. So they know how that, what you're doing is going to affect the supply and demand fundamentals and they will price it accordingly. 
Yeah, yeah, I know from the animal nutrition world, which is a large, you know, it's a commodities business focused on feed additives. You only really make money when one of your competitors' facilities breaks down or they go bust, and you have a short window of time to really control the price of of that particular additive. I mean, it's a really, really challenging business to be in, which I think, you know, at scale of mining is incredibly risky in, in that sense. And I think you touched on another bit there as well, which is typically to make those decisions, it's it's quite a, I mean, the, the, those are far more complex decisions than making a trade decision, so to speak. But quite often you can have traders start to become involved and oversee that kind of asset investment. And you can see that actually there are some different thinking required perhaps around big asset decisions that you're going from the short term to the long term is what I mean. You're going from thinking about 20 years instead of six months. And you know you can see that being a source of certain organizations becoming unstuck as well. Yes, because very often in many organizations, there's a difference between the teams that are constructing and operating assets versus the you know, the trading teams that are sitting in some other building. And very often they don't work together that well. And the trading the trading arms, you know, tends to look at the asset guys as just, you know, merrily going away, being engineers, building all this, all this stuff. Uh, and they know better. And the engineers look at the traders as just, you know, a bunch of mercenaries that are, you know, punting the futures market every day. And in fact, you know, in some organizations, there's an, there's a, there are elements of that, but some organizations get that right. And they, they manage to get the asset, the asset uh, people and the trading people to work together in a way where, you know, their, their experiences actually produce something that is meaningful and actually manages risk for the organization. Um, some organizations get that right, but many don't. I feel we're in danger of putting off anyone ever considering getting into the commodities industry. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I would say the opposite, but I would also, but I would also say, don't underestimate how complex and how many different skill sets you're going to need to properly manage the risk. Mm. So, looking forwards, how has the philosophy of managing risk perhaps changed over the last decade, and? What do you see for the future in terms of leveraging technology to to better understand all, I, what really is about the confluence of risks? I think that's the theme that's drawn out for me in this is uh, market risk is fine. It's when it meets liquidity, credit, and operational risk that suddenly things spiral out of control. How is technology transforming our ability to measure and react to these types of risks? Well, I think it's certainly the case that the you know the technology proposition that uh, defines how you measure and aggregate risk that's made life a lot easier there's some great systems out there that are complex to install but once you do you can rely on the fact that when you look at a position report it's an accurate representation of the commitments that you've got in your trading book so you know technology has made huge leaps and bounds there in terms of the mathematics around you know estimating value at risk um, I think we've made made some progress, um, and I do think that we've learned some lessons from just slavishly following a value at risk number and the qualitative aspects around position construction and fundamental risk management have found their way into a lot more 
of trading shops. So I think, you know, generally the quality of, of risk management being a combination of you know, mathematical skill, uh, computational horsepower and qualitative oversight have got better. Yeah. Although I think the skill sets, people who have those skill sets have gotten fewer as we've had sort of a decade and, you know, this is a, a theme of ours, you've had a decade of underinvestment in all the skill sets within the commodities trading world. There aren't too many people that have been through this transition over the last 20 years and who also have the technology skill set available to combine all of those aspects and actually take advantage of of, of uh, these trends and, and deliver that sort of fine risk management product that organizations are going to need. I'm sure you're right. And, and part of it is because, you know, the whole concept of trading uh, has become, you know, less popular. A lot of investment firms, uh, if you show them a business that talks about trading, they'll kind of, you know, turn away because it, it's, it seems to be a lightning rod for um, worries about, as you mentioned, human malfeasance. We've all seen so many blow-ups that are attrib- always attributed to, you know, one person on the desk who you know, got off the leash and and went and did this. But in reality, uh, th- those people are often just the kind of the scapegoat for a bigger organisational problem. Yeah, and actually, I, I guess a couple of comments from me. One would be we were also dealing with confirmation bias here, right? Which is day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year. There are relatively few of these. And one of the surprising things about COVID-19 was how few there actually were, right? The impact on the market was so dramatic that it really did expose any risks that organizations had. Um, And there were actually relatively few. And they were in less developed markets, you know, more sort of um, less transparent locations. So I think that's heartening. And the second side of that is that, even when you look at that top 10 I mentioned in the intro, the top 10 trading losses, the three of which were commodities, they were actually all relatively historical now, dating back a, a decade or so, which might be itself a function of the fact that there are fewer traders in commodities right now than there were 10 years ago, but probably also actually because there has been huge strides in risk management and and regulation and so forth that have meant that organizations are probably better equipped to understand the risks in their business than they were 20 years ago. I would tend to agree. I think, you know, generally we've got better at at assessing and managing risk. However, I would just caution one point. The market really moved uh, in March, around March time, like all markets trended in a, you know, in a, in a big way in one direction and we're only December. And so <laughs> I think if, if, a, if a company was out there with a position that was, was too big and couldn't manage it, we'd have probably heard the tree fall in the forest by now, but not necessarily. And so as we cross over to the year end, I, I still think we may find that somebody got themselves upside down in that market move in all markets, not just commodities, because remember the financial market moved moved huge too. And you know, I still think we're going to see uh, some of the impact of that as we head into the new year. So I wouldn't say yet <laughs> that it's over. Before I let you go, 
is is what's your sort of one takeaway or bit of advice for leadership for risk management teams and leadership on this topic very simple i would say up front uh, assess all the risks understand what it is you're betting on understand all the things that can blow that that uh, bet up remove those risks and so that ex post when the returns trickle in you're able to tell the difference between being lucky and being good well it's been a, as always a fascinating discussion i've really really enjoyed it and and thanks very much for your time no likewise thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show please give us a positive review on apple podcasts or spotify to find out more about hc insider and human capital a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector go to www.hcinsider.global where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offerings as a search firm and our locations around the world thanks again for listening